0: Before the colonizers came, Waipahu, Hawaii was known for its idyllic freshwater spring. It was less than three square miles wide, but despite its small size, it stood as the capital of the island of Oahu and was a frequent retreat for the Hawaiian royal family. But the arrival of European outsiders in the late 19th century began a process of colonial encroachment. In 1887, a group of non-native Hawaiian subjects of English and American descent engineered a coup against the island's king, Kalakaua. At gunpoint, Kalakaua was coerced into signing a new constitution for Hawaii. It transformed the country into a supposed representational democracy, where only wealthy and mostly white landowners had the right to vote. King Kalakaua died in 1891. His sister, Queen Lily Uokalani, campaigned for the development of a new constitution that would greatly reduce the power of non-resident English and American businessmen in Hawaiian politics. But the same white subjects who had targeted King Kalakaua led a military coup with American support in 1893. Lawyer Sanford Dole was declared president of the provisional government, and he and his supporters actively campaigned for the United States to annex the Hawaiian Islands, On August 12, 1898, the Republic of Hawaii became a territory of the United States. President McKinley appointed Dole as the island's first governor. In 1897, the Oahu Sugar Company built a sugar mill in Waipahu. The company's management imported laborers from outside Hawaii, housing them on the grounds of the plantation. The majority were Japanese and Chinese, with Portuguese and Filipino immigrants filling out the labor pool. The work was backbreaking and the pay was poor. While the communities were originally segregated, lack of resources forced the workers to band together across ethnic lines. The county of Honolulu set up a 40-acre park opposite the mill in 1973. Today, it's been converted into a living history museum known as Hawaii's Plantation Village. It contains 25 replica plantation houses and other community buildings staged to illustrate the different ways of living within Hawaii's plantation system from the 1900s to 1930s. While depictions of each culture are very specific, the park also explores the ways the immigrants came together to form the multicultural society that is modern-day Hawaii. Stepping into the village is like stepping into another time. And the stories people tell about the village itself... Make it seem more unearthly. Half of the one to three room houses and community areas, which include the plantation store, a barber shop, and a makeshift sumo ring, are considered to be haunted. Bruno hated his wife for dying. She should have held on tighter. She should have fought to stand by his side for the rest of their years. Instead, She'd passed from this world in her sleep. She hadn't tried at all. Now, Bruno was stuck taking care of Elisa on his own. He had nothing in common with a five-year-old girl. She wanted to make new dresses for her rag dolls and crowns out of palm fronds. He didn't know how to sew, and he was tired from his long days in the fields. He didn't need her constant questions or distractions. He just wanted to rest. He refused to let his co-workers and neighbors see his shortcomings, opting instead to tie Elisa to a chair during the days. He'd always left her with some fruit and her dolls, so she wouldn't be bored. Just out of the way. In the fields, he could pretend that he was a single man. No commitments tying him down. The workers gave him room to breathe and silence when he needed it. He started to look forward to his longer shifts because he would not have to be home with a girl he didn't want or understand. He created small pockets in the soil, dropping seeds in carefully and covering them again with more dirt. It was almost meditative. He could smell the ocean in the air as he worked. But today, the smell was smothered by something thicker. He looked up to the skies to see puffs of gray above him. He waited for the rains to fall, but the clouds only grew darker. The air had become too thick to swallow. Fire! Groups of workers abandoned their positions and ran toward the village. Water slashed out of their pails as they raced to stop the conflagration. But Bruno took his time, an idea forming in his mind. Flames licked up at the sky, pulling chunks of wooden roof down to the ground. The buildings were too close. One house eaten by fire could lead to the whole village being demolished. Still, Bruno kept his distance. He approached the edge of the village and watched the citizens scramble to save what they could. His own house was already burning at the distance. He took two steps, then stopped. Elisa was inside, still tied to the chair. If he lingered, she would never be his problem again. They'd hidden their child from the managers. No one would know that she had ever existed. He would be free. Bruno grabbed a pail from a man's waiting arms and approached the farthest house from the fire. Slowly he doused the building with water. This house would be protected from the destruction, unlike his own. He turned a laugh into a cough, not wanting to let the others know what a blessing this fire had been. All of his problems were vanishing, like smoke rising from a dying flame. The scream of a small child rang in his ears. Bruno dropped his bucket. If Elisa was alive, he would have to play the role of doting father once more. He ran across the village, not daring to say her name. Her screams pierced through the din, loud and clear. He whirled around, but none of the other villagers noticed they were all too focused on containing the fire. He stumbled toward his house. Annoying though she was, he was not sure that even he had the stomach to watch his daughter burn alive. At least his vomiting might look like regret. Summoning his courage, he peered through the doorway. Elisa sat in the chair. Though the ropes that held her in place appeared to have burned away, the fire did not touch her skin at all. Instead, she shone in the hazy orange light of the blaze. Her mouth was open in a scream, but the sound came from all around. It echoed in Bruno's ears, overpowering everything, as if emanating from the flames themselves. Bruno rubbed at his face to clear the smoke from his eyes. She could not have survived this force of nature. It defied all reason. A large splash of water struck Bruno's back he blinked, turning around. The other workers were coming up behind him, bearing buckets of water. The rest of the fire must have been contained already. Bruno staggered back from the remains of his home as his fellow villagers doused the flames. He was not ready for the village to know his shame. He did not want them to see the child that he'd kept hidden away, because she was too much of a burden for any one man. A woman approached the house as the last of the flames were extinguished. Bruno wanted to stop her somehow. Elisa still held his gaze, fire dancing in her eyes. He didn't understand why or how, but he couldn't let the woman see her. The woman let out a soft cry and rushed into Bruno's house before he could move. The child's screams gave way to the woman's weeping. She returned with a small body in her arms. Elisa no longer looked like a girl at all. Her skin was bubbling away, leaving spots of bone behind. Burns covered her entire body, just a charred piece of driftwood that had smoldered for too long. She looked as though she would crumble in the smallest wind. Bruno couldn't believe his eyes. Only seconds ago, he had seen her whole her serene face and untouched skin indicting him for his crimes. The ashen remains of her body were placed in Bruno's arms. He was alarmed to feel wetness on his face. He didn't remember when he had started to cry. The screams still echoed within his ears, even though Elisa no longer had enough jaw left to make a sound. He raised his gaze to the burned-out entryway of his home, Elisa was still there. She smiled over at him, pointing curiously at the corpse in his hands. He brought his eyes back to the corpse. Elisa was dead. What remained of her hair was tied in a braid of his own pathetic design. It could not be anyone else's child. So how was she still in the house looking as though nothing had touched her? Bruno's knees gave out. He dropped to the dirt. He drew his child's corpse closer to his chest. She started to crumble in his hands. Her femur broke like dry wood. Her ribs disintegrated into a fine powder. Bruno screamed in agony as the girl in his house continued to gaze up at him with absolute admiration. The spitting image of his wife. He couldn't stand the sight of her. A soft hand settled on his shoulder. Two villagers slowly bent down beside him. They asked for Bruno to hand the body over. They would give her a proper burial. They reassured him that he wouldn't have to worry about anything in this already trying time. Bruno nodded. He didn't want to carry the weight of Elisa's corpse any longer. He wanted her gone, so far removed from him that he never had to think of her again. The waiting hands carried her away. He was finally rid of her. Another hand touched his neck softly. Bruno fought the impulse to flinch. It was probably another villager, wanting to lead him to their house for dinner and consolation. He needed someone to take care of him right now. He turned his head slowly. Elisa stood beside him, cupping his cheek in her small hand. Clouds of smoke left her lips as she spoke. She told him not to worry about her. She had found a way to stay by his side forever. They could have so much fun together. The most common spirit seen on the grounds of Hawaii's plantation village is the ghost of a young girl. She lingers at the supposed site of her tragic death. When she frightened a female guide at the museum in the early 2010s, a priest told her that the little girl only wanted to play. Hawaii's Plantation Village executive director, Jeffrey Higa, told Honolulu Magazine that the ghost apparently told the priest that she had sought the guide out because she didn't have a mother. The girl is believed to have been the daughter of a laborer at the sugar mill, a widower and reluctant single father who had no one to care for his daughter. He opted to tie her to a chair while he was working during the day. She perished in a fire that broke out in the village, and now appears to be searching for a kinder family to call her own. It is remarkable that the ghostly girl is so kind. Considering the circumstances of her life, But her fellow specters are not so kind, and far more mysterious. Up next, a child's toy develops a mind of its own. Now back to the story. The overthrow of the native Hawaiian monarchy in 1893 created a major foothold for foreign business interests on the Hawaiian Islands, Lower barriers to export invited wealthy non-indigenous landowners to purchase or expand plantations in order to cultivate sugarcane and pineapple. The native Hawaiian population was shrinking rapidly as a result of diseases from outsiders, and many of the plantation owners decided to import their own workforce. The first workers were Chinese, but they were soon joined by workers from the Azores, Madeiras, Japan, Puerto Rico, Okinawa, Korea, And the Philippines. None of these workers were paid in cash. They were given scripts, a kind of coupon that was only redeemable at the plantation store. Plantation laborers were also identified by number rather than name. Each laborer and their families were given metal discs called bangos with stamped numbers. Despite these dehumanizing measures, the various immigrant cultures began to improve their conditions due to their shared language and heritage. Each new group of laborers meant a new small settlement in the camps, divided up by national or cultural origin. While the mysterious little girl in the pale white Portuguese house is the plantation village's most famous ghost, the site's supernatural phenomena isn't limited to benevolent spirits. In one house, a peculiar rebellious spirit resides in a doll. Ryan never thought he'd be spending time in a tropical paradise listening to depressing stories about how things used to be hundreds of years ago. He wanted to be by the beach surfing or eating fresh pineapple, but his brother had insisted that they learn more about the history of immigration. The rain started to fall in a light drizzle. It was the last thing he wanted to deal with in the midst of an outdoor walking tour. Their guide was prepared ushering them through a small fenced yard and up a small set of stairs into what they called the Puerto Rican house. They clustered together in the main room. The rain drummed against the roof, swallowing half of the tour guide's speech. Brian gave up all pretense of paying attention. If his brother wanted to listen to these stories, he could. He'd rather think about anything else. When the tour guide turned to point out something about the whitewashed walls, Brian slipped away from the back of the group. If he was going to be in a centuries-old house, he wanted the chance to explore without someone watching his every move. The rooms were small. You could almost hear the sounds of small children wandering around as their parents got everything ready for bed. They'd be told to pick up their toys so no one tripped in the middle of the night on the way to the chamber pot. Someone had really gone above and beyond in designing this particular room. There was even a doll lying in the middle of the floor, arms splayed wide. He shivered. When he was younger, Ryan had been the kind of kid who tore off Barbie heads. Then he had a dream where the headless toys formed a wriggling mass, a giant who leaned down to attack him with its amorphous plastic arms. He never looked at any sort of doll the same way since. This one was hand-stitched. She wore a black frock with large plumerias over it. There were red X's where eyes would normally be. Her smile was crooked, the mark of being handmade by someone who didn't have the time to be precise. Her fingers were skinny, like someone had pulled the stuffing out of her. Her feet were several sizes bigger than the rest of her body. This was a doll that only a child could love. And by the looks of it, she'd been well-loved, Her fabric was threadbare from years of use. Ryan's brother called his name. He turned, answering him as quietly as he could. He wasn't supposed to be in here alone, after all. And he didn't want a lecture from someone whose voice sounded like an adult in a Peanuts cartoon. There was a soft scuffle against the floor. Ryan braced for detection, waiting for someone to walk through the doorway. But it remained empty. Ryan turned back to take in the rest of the room. Maybe there was some cool trinket hiding amongst the antique accessories. He poked around a little, but when his eyes slid back to the center of the room, something was wrong. The doll was several inches closer to him. It had to be his imagination, his old dreams coming back to haunt him. Using his shoe, he pushed the doll a little farther back. That was better. The more distance between him and the raggedy thing, the easier it was to remember that this was just some prop on a museum tour. He wandered the corners of the room, but there was nothing else that really captured his attention. He was walking toward the door, ready to get back to the tour, when he noticed that the doll had moved again. She was barely one foot away. Ryan backed up until he felt the wall behind him. He really didn't like this. It felt like some sort of twisted punishment, revenge for all those dolls he decapitated as a child who didn't know any better. He hugged the walls, reaching a small window. Ryan tried to raise the glass up with one hand, but it wouldn't budge. He took his eyes off the doll, just long enough to try and pry the window up with both hands. No luck. There was another rustle of something soft against the floor. Ryan abandoned his plan, hoping that his brother was on the other side of the door. He wasn't so lucky. The doll was using its oversized legs to propel itself toward him, its big feet accordioned out and then in with each step, dragging itself forward as if on unseen strings. He looked for some quick means of escape. It was still too close for him to be able to reach the door without running the risk of touching it. If the doll could move... There was no telling what else it was capable of. The head of the doll lifted up off the floor, bright red X's staring back at Ryan. He hated how closely the color resembled freshly spilled blood. Ryan shifted his weight. He took two steps to the left. The head followed his every move. He couldn't tell if it was just his panic or something else, but her feet seemed to stretch. And her feet kept stretching. Brian yelled for his brother, for the rest of the group, for the boring tour guide. He would take anyone if they would just clear a path for him to circumvent the doll. No one acknowledged his cry for help. He didn't have another option. The doll's legs were continuing to stretch. Soon enough, there would be no place for him to hide. Every square inch of the room would be smothered by the doll's inky black dress the flowers growing larger and larger with it until they seemed to be floating on a pool of deep, dark water. He took a beat to steady his nerves, told himself it wasn't real, and then made a break for it. Ryan had never moved so quickly in his entire life. The door was just within his reach. He took one step across the threshold, then felt himself being dragged backward. He cried out, begging for someone to hear him, as he slid into the viscous darkness. The massive dress gave out a content, almost musical sigh. Then, there was nothing. Just an empty room, a dark house, and a still doll at the center of the floor. And silence. The affluent plantation owners did their best to maintain a strict caste system among the workers and mandated ethnic separation in living accommodations. But the workers socialized anyway, forming a diverse and unique culture, which even included its own language, Hawaiian Pidgin. This kind of intermixing is reflected in the sharing of cultural markers between different ethnic settlements. Just down the hill from the Portuguese house sits a replica of a Puerto Rican dwelling, It includes a Japanese doll in a glass display case. But the doll doesn't appear to agree with its method of storage. It's been known to move on its own, escaping its confinement to get closer to visitors. Coming up, Hawaii's plantation village transforms into a haunted house for the month of October. What could go wrong? now back to the story. In 2006, Hawaii's Plantation Village began doing a yearly fundraiser, a transformation of the grounds into a haunted plantation attraction. It began as a small affair with only a handful of actors. But the collection of haunted houses only grew in popularity thanks to its strong atmospherics and striking makeup. Its bone-chilling reputation is helped by the unnerving fact that 15 scare actors abruptly quit their jobs in the attraction's first 10 years. They claim to have been attacked by an unseen force far scarier than anything they could imitate. During the day, the village looked like a set from an eclectic PBS program. It was idyllic, almost tranquil. Neat houses lined up in rows with small porches where you could take in the sunlight. Neil had only ever been to the village in the daytime, which made it hard for him to picture what it would look like as a Halloween attraction. He expected to hear that they added massive backdrops, cobwebs, and blood spatter in hopes of making every house as spooky as possible. His boss for the next few months had laughed, calling the decorations unnecessary. Neil didn't get it. There was nothing weird about orderly white houses. But as he showed up for his first day of work, he started to see the property through new eyes. Against the backdrop of the night sky, the white house paint appeared to glow. Fog obscured the paths. A haunting organ moaned softly in the background. Neil stumbled as he walked down what he thought was the correct path. Someone called his name. He turned to find Carrie, a fellow actor. She was already dressed up for the night. Her mouth had been replaced by an inky black hole. Her hair was concealed beneath a bald cap, with bursting veins that pulsed softly in the darkness. He didn't recognize anything about her, except her voice. As he approached, she gave him her best impression of Monk's The Scream. He told her she looked great. She told him he needed a head to makeup sooner rather than later. Neil nodded. He turned in a half circle, trying to remember which direction he'd just come from. In the sunlight, he had been able to see small variations in the wood grain that told him which house he was walking towards. Right now, they all blended together. Neil opted for going left cutting in between houses to save time. He jogged through the grass, trying to ignore the pole of the glowing houses. He knew what was hiding inside. Each actor had been assigned a dark corner of a plantation house. As guests walked through, the actors would step out of the shadows and let the surprise and makeup do the work for them. Crowds would shriek and cry If they were lucky, someone wouldn't laugh or fall over in fright. If they weren't, they'd be dodging punches to the face. Neil didn't want to be frightened. He just wanted to do his job, collect his paycheck, and go home. But there was something about the way the moonlight hit each house that made him consider deviating from his plan. Just this once, he wanted to peer inside and see if someone needed him. He stopped walking. That was a dumb thought. No one needed him. They were just actors. No one was actually in danger. He looked down at his watch. He was about to be late. He picked up the pace. He caught a flash of a small girl with braided hair peering out at him from a window. She was almost translucent-looking, clutching a small rag doll. She looked too young to be an actor. He gave her a hesitant wave and sped up. The makeup tent came into view ahead of him. It stood out like a sharp breath of normalcy in the foggy, dark world of the haunted plantation. By the time they were done, Neil didn't even recognize himself. He retraced his steps as best he could, looking for the girl. He peered in the window of every house he passed, but he couldn't find her. Kiri grabbed his hand. Neil jumped backwards, his heart thundering at his ears. He hadn't even seen her approach. She told him she was practicing. And dragged him over to his assigned house. She had watched him get lost earlier and thought he could use some help. He asked if she knew who the little girl was. Kiri didn't know what he was talking about. Neil shook it off and walked inside the building known as the Okinawan House. It was time for him to do his job. He picked a corner and waited for the crowds to come. The shrieks carried from the houses up the path. Kiri was in fine form tonight. A kid's voice carried over to him, asking for help. He felt the urge to take a step, but then he remembered where he was. It was probably just another actor who had gotten the houses mixed up. Something gripped his shins. He looked down, but he couldn't see anything in the darkness. His muscles tightened as the force tugged at him. The child spoke again. Neil muttered to himself that his job would be easier if the kid were a little quieter nothing worse than a bad team player. Whatever it was, yanked at his shins, drawing them an inch farther into the dark corner. Neil held onto the windowsill for support, fighting the weight that was dragging on him. He shook his foot loose from the invisible grip, flexing it to bring circulation back to the muscles. Footsteps came from the porch stairs. Neil slunk back into his corner to wait for his cue. He tracked the guests as they made their way through the house. His body tensed as he prepared to jump forward. Just as his legs left the ground, arms wrapped around his throat. With an audience watching him, Neil jerked backwards. He hit the hard wooden floor tailbone first, and a ragged, unintelligible sound left his mouth. He tried to ask for help, but the pressure against his vocal cords wouldn't let the words come through. The tourist family laughed and clapped with delight. They congratulated him on his acting as he writhed on the floor, trying desperately to get his unseen attacker to let go. His breaths became shallower as his airway tightened. The world started to swim in front of him as his head shifted from side to side. The audience still stood there, watching him from a distance. They wouldn't be able to see the strain of his neck under the layers of makeup. If his skin was turning colors, it wouldn't be noticeable in the dim light. He had no way of letting these people know the danger he was in. Neil's fingers went to his neck. His fingernails dug into his skin as he tried fruitlessly to grab the hands that held him in place. He felt thin, sticky streams of blood as he clawed his own skin in desperation. The invisible hands finally let go. Neil sucked in a large breath of air. He pressed his fingers gently against the skin, feeling the small welts on his flesh. He waited in the silence, willing himself to find the courage to leave. He took the deepest breath he'd ever taken and found some peace. Then the invisible hands came back, holding his own fingers in place with more power than he could ever imagine. To the outside world, it would look as though he was choking himself. The audience started to grow bored, looking at their phones instead of him. Neil forced the heavy sound of a (sighs) out of his mouth, but he couldn't get the rest of the word to come out. A man in the crowd told him he was overselling the act. Neil tried to lift his hands away from his neck, but the inhuman pressure caved his throat inwards. The crowd shuffled off to the next house. Neil's world dimmed to a pinhole. He forced the sound out again, but there was no one to hear him. He felt his body start to grow heavy. He didn't want to give up, but he was losing his energy. His eyes drifted shut. A snap echoed through the darkness like a gunshot. A girl with braids crept back into the shadows. Haunted Plantation has grown significantly in size since its creation in 2006. The creator of the attraction, Noah Laporga, told Honolulu Magazine that he had supernatural experiences in the park from day one. The little girl made her appearance first, tugging on Laporga's mother's keys. But something else lurks there. Leporgus says that two of the actresses working in the Portuguese house developed severe hand-shaped bruises on their legs. In another building, known as the Okinawan House, people are frequently choked by an unseen presence, crushing their windpipe until they exit the home. Whatever waits in the Okinawan House is angry. It's no wonder. Hawaii's plantation system is one of the most obvious signs of imperialism's impact on the island's culture and environment. It scarred that land and harmed its people for over 100 years. And many of the immigrants' contracts were effectively agreements of indentured servitude. Beatings were technically illegal and generally discouraged within the more modern sugar industry. But when they did happen, they were excused. In one notable murder trial, a plantation supervisor was acquitted after beating a Chinese worker to death because the jury found that the worker had died of his suicidal tendencies. A supposedly expert witness for the defense said that the Chinese were known to commit suicide on trivial occasions. Hawaii's plantation village is history frozen in time. The village tells the true and often harrowing stories of laborers in the sugar industry, while exploring the ways immigrant populations adapted and innovated under the oppression of colonial Hawaii. One of the most peculiar things about the hauntings at Hawaii's plantation village is that many of them occur in replica buildings. The ghosts appeared unmoored from their original locations, drawn to an area where their suffering and sacrifice are acknowledged. Since 2006, it's been Hawaii's plantation village policy that none of the workers carry out their duties in any of the houses alone. They work in pairs in hopes of avoiding any more girls in white, haunted dolls, or invisible assailants. If you go in the daytime, you're likely to be allowed to explore to your heart's content, but best to ignore the high activity zones. Unfortunately, The most haunted spot in the large village appears to be the Portuguese house, and it stands right next to the entrance. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Haunted Places for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse and type Haunted Places in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil Ritter and Jennifer Roche, With writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson.